I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. Hey, Mr. Binks. You know how I don't really eat meat myself, although I do insist that you and Prudence and Gremlin eat meat, but I know that it's been ethically sourced. Now, we're going to discuss this and a whole lot more with the PDSA vet, Sean Wensley, who's written an amazing book called Through a Vet's Eyes. Sean Wensley, welcome to A Dog's Life. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me on. Oh, no. Well, you emailed about your, your book because rightly you're, you're really proud of it, as, as you are when you do a book. It's called Through a Vet's Eyes, and I could see it had a picture of a pig on the front, you know. So me being me, I was just like, yeah, you look, you know, I've known Sean for ages. We'll get him on the pod. And I just assumed it was going to be a bit like, you know, all creatures great and small, individual chapters about particular cases and, and funny moments and sad moments and all the rest of it when in fact it's not really like that at all is it Sean it's quite a thought-provoking is um uh, one way of putting it a very deep book yeah well thanks thanks again for having me Anna and um needless to say thank you for reading the book as well because uh, you don't when you're writing a book it's a bit of a labor of love isn't it and you sit there for quite a long time not daring to believe that someone might one day read it so that's all uh, fabulous thank you um but yeah I suppose I mean this to my mind even justifies my um approach to you because the, I, the sort of self-promotion that comes with the book as well can be a little bit awkward but it's very much a message driven book so it does slot into the the kind of rich veterinary genre of storytelling and taking a walk with a vet to the the patient side and and that sort of thing but what I've tried to use that approach as something of a platform for opening our eyes to some of the um the types of relationships that we have with animals across different areas of animal use. So there's there are animals that are farmed um, for, for meat and dairy, animals that we use for sport, animals that we use as companions and some of the interactions that we have with wild animals. And we have relationships with animals, don't we, across all of those different areas. Well, but you could say place... that relationships, I've got to cut in there. Yeah. Relationships, she says, crumbs. Gosh, I mean... Tony, if I could talk to a pig farmer and say, you know, gosh, you have such a great relationship with your pigs. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, a lot of the uh, academic literature would talk about them as human animal interactions, which I suppose is a, a bit drier, but maybe a more accurate description. But at the heart, there are relationships and even between farmers and their animals. You know, very many farmers care deeply for for how they approach husbanding their animals but often some of the harms that are caused to animals and I document those harms in a kind of unflinching way I hope you'll agree yes um, I agree I agree oh <laughs> they happen for about, a reason you know yeah be, I know they happen oh. for a reason but you know oh my word oh the two bits were pig's tails and the other bit was um oh god cow's horns oh dear you know mm. ow and um I appreciate both of those. <laughs> you know, will it explain a bit more? I mean, on the farming side, I, I'd say, Sean, you know, if you have a friend 
anyone listening that is toying with the idea <laughs> of becoming vegetarian or vegan in 2023, then please buy Sean's book <laughs> because they definitely will become a vegan or a veggie after reading it. I'm a veggie, so, you know, occasionally I might eat a steak if if I'm blessed to go to a very expensive place where the steak is from really good organic grass-fed free-range cows that live a happy life otherwise you know I, I'm never going to buy a bit of meat in a supermarket ever you know yeah and so what I think what I try to do is yes shine a spotlight on some of the things that have gone that have kind of gone wrong with those interactions and deeply wrong I mean I know I speak in a fairly sort of lighthearted way, but deep, deeply wrong, and, and it is unflinching. But there are, there are reasons why we've come to the point that we're at. So what I'd like, I try to make the book as positive and as optimistic as possible. And some of those reasons are that historically, we just haven't been so able to identify animal well elements of animal well-being and pain and suffering or there's been some evidence but we've been reluctant to believe it for one reason or another and then even now that we know about some of the harms that we cause and there is a good scientific basis for them nevertheless our society is set up and our economic model is set up in a certain way um, and that's going to need to change dramatically and I don't shy away from that I think it's not intended to be a prescription for veganism or vegetarianism and i do talk about you know sort of um, some of the higher welfare assurances that are available but the bottom line i think that the take-home message and one of the phrases i use in the books about our animal welfare footprint and thinking about our animal welfare footprints and that comes about by the way we vote and the type of food we choose to buy and certain logos that we look for i think the important thing is that we're we're thoughtful and aware and as long as everybody does something different then you know, I massively respect people that do choose vegetarianism and veganism. I think they're really important options for, for some people. But it's not, if I solely strive to that, then, you know, we wouldn't be um, mobilizing and, and enabling uh, uh, what is currently a, a vast majority. And I think we can genuinely all do something. And I talk about the different ways um, about that in the book. Yeah, no, you do. And, I, you know, I was being a bit dramatic, you know, me. You know, I was shocked because I, I grew up in Shropshire, actually, but mm. I'm, I'm a self-confessed total townie really now. And so I, I discovered things in this book that I didn't know about, right? Because mm. mm. I wasn't aware that chickens bred only for meat called broilers have been genetically modified so that they grow at such a ridiculously fast pace that the poor things can't move and they suffer great pain and um, their whole life they can't move because they're just getting fatter and fatter and fatter and then they're killed at a really early age in not a very nice way and they're kind of hoovered up in like some sort of combine harvester gadget because people can't even be bothered to pick them up individually and oh it was dreadful and and then your comparison which I did know that you know back in the 1950s we didn't really eat a lot of meat as mm. a nation you know we'd have perhaps chicken a, a roast once a week and and that chicken would then be boiled for the bones to make the good soup and then you know and you'd have the leftovers and and it would go on for several meals whereas the book left me feeling oh we're very greedy and you know we've got so much choice on the shelves to eat and there really needs to be a step change but you, but yeah. you also highlight how 
know campaigns like you know the Jamie Oliver campaign on battery chickens and that that was very eye-opening do you remember that one mm, yeah, and yeah. yeah 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 and customer demand as you said is is now making farmers think well actually if we're going to sell any chickens at all they actually have to be free range or organic because that's what the consumer wants and ultimately the client's always right yeah and i mean the the real kind of zooming out the real step back from all of this is that the sort of underlying kind of moral premise so we, we, what has really grown in prominence in in recent times so the last decade or so is awareness and understanding of animal sentience so the simple simple but profound capacity for animals to share feelings that are similar to ours including hunger and pain and thirst and fear and and pleasure some of the, the positive emotions as well and once you're persuaded of that I mean I think we've always on and off haven't we suspected it and very many of us as individuals have been haven't really needed science to prove it but now that we do have scientific evidence for animal sentience and it's widely accepted and it's enshrined in not least UK legislation we have to do something about it we can't simply ignore it and treat animals as though they are insentient as though they are just you know unthinking inanimate objects so the question is what do we do and we can either abstain uh, there's the kind of traditional sort of animal rights based view of these sorts of issues and so well animals just aren't there for us to exploit and abuse and use for our whims as some people would say and we should seek to abolish all of these uses or we should do it better and the, the kind of classic animal welfare based position is that we should give them a good life and a humane death it's okay to use them for our benefit so long as they have a good life and a humane death but that <laughs> you know then begs all what's going on that isn't compatible with a good life and, and really to solve a lot of the problems that you've touched on the things like the um, piglet tail docking piglet uh, teeth clipping the dehorning of calves um, and the rapid growth rate in, in in meat chickens that's resulted in painful lameness as a society we now have to turn our minds to uh, addressing those problems um, which is helped by science so the science continues and we you know it's, it's, we need to know where we are and where we're going and whether we're, whether or not we're getting there and some of those practices could be abolished so you don't have to get rid of all of animal farming but you could certainly seek to reduce the reliance on mutilations and seek to abolish those altogether and in the meantime just use pain relief and better pain relief and make sure we're fully taking account of of the pain that some of those practices are causing so there are definitely steps that can be taken i think the worry is that we sort of take the big picture view and then go oh my goodness there's just so yes. much animal suffering and we're so far from the vision of a good life for humanity. i know but i what's really don't want that to feel no 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 it doesn't sean i'm, I'm being you know i'm being that is brilliant Absolutely. okay no cool Excellent. cool but but you see what i was about to say because the other you know, aspect of the book that I thought, oh, this is interesting. I like the names of these chapters as I, you know, you get a book and you flick through it and mm -hmm. there aren't any pictures. Right? I'm, <laughs> I'm a bit of a child, but it's, I'm thinking, oh, sea cliffs and chickens. Mm -hmm. And I think, oh, robins and crows, you know, mm -hmm. lovely, you know, interesting chapter names. But explain, as we've and talked about chickens, the, the sea cliffs and, and chickens chapter, because for most of it, you're on a sea cliff, you've edged up this cliff in deepest, darkest Welsh Wales, as I remember, and yeah. you're just observing the seabirds in their full glory before you visit a chicken farm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seamless, isn't it? <laughs> seamless, same um, way. <laughs> what I've tried to do through the book um, is bring together, I suppose, two 
genres in a way. So one is the kind of veterinary animal welfare, animal rights type genre. And that's through my desire to raise awareness of the issues that we're talking about and some of the supporting science. And the other genre is the, again, the kind of classic and much loved genre of, of nature writing and being out in green space and blue space and just beautiful. I've selected some of my favorite UK wildlife spectacles to write about those, but there was a, a method in the madness. So I think my first reason was to, to try and be authentic. So I wanted this to, I wanted readers to kind of hopefully build a relationship with me as the author and kind of walk with me and we'll sort of observe and discuss together. And because my route into veterinary science has been through the natural world, then I couldn't think of a more kind of authentic and intimate way of doing it than trying to take people to these beautiful places. But then aside from that, the the purpose and the justification of the nature writing was to to genuinely try and provide some as has been the case in my own life, try and provide some levity. So whilst, yes, we go to the coal face of all of these human-animal interactions and are then troubled by some of the things we see and the ethical implications, that's a great time to pause and go down to the beach again, go down to the dunes, go and see starlings at their murmuration in winter and just be reminded that there's you know, overwhelming beauty in the world as well as all of the horrible suffering. Um, so there's something about just trying to lift the mood repeatedly through the book. Um, and then finally, I think there's something about both being reminded that our domestic and domesticated species have come from nature. They haven't just landed on the earth for our use. So it's a kind of reminder that they all have wild ancestors, which is relevant to considerations of how we look after them. And also maybe something about close observation. So when, a, when we're out and we spot a little branch just moving a bit more than you'd expect the wind to blow it or the breeze to blow it on that day. And sure enough, you look across at the next branch and there's a little red squirrel there grooming, grooming their fur. That kind of close observation is, is also applicable to the, the um, farm and other settings where, for example, indicators of pain in a lamb that have had their tail docked without anesthetic or pain relief are that they just kick a little bit more and they wag their tail a little bit more. And they're more likely than their pen mates that have had um, pain relief in experimental settings to lie down and stand up and again, kick the legs. And it's just all about animal observation. And I think hopefully trying to attune the reader a bit to that as well, I, I felt could, yes. could be valuable. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. And you, you talk a lot in the book about birds, um, Sean. You, you are a bird bird man aren't you really you, you, you mm. love birds well it yeah. certainly comes through in a very positive way and you were very proactive in banning wild birds like parrots you know to come into the UK from Africa not least because of diseases they might bring with them but mm. from an abject total cruelty perspective on these poor birds that mm. travel on a plane for about 12 hours oh you know it doesn't bear thinking about and they're so confused and most of them die yes with birds in particular you know I've always wondered about birds being kept as pets explain a bit more we will get to dogs listeners in a minute actually <laughs> or should we segue actually to the fox because the fox chapter resonated really strongly with me I absolutely loved it I was picturing you in your parents garden where you spotted a fox cub I think your dad spotted mm. it didn't he and got you out there and you were like oh and bit by bit you and this fox became besties didn't you really but yeah. it, and, and it reminded me a bit you see about this wild side thinking about wild dogs and our domesticated dogs foxes or canines 
it reminded me a bit of, yeah, you could see how it all happened 30,000 years ago, you know, with Neanderthal man sat by his fire. And one of the braver pups of a wolf pack might have wandered over smelling the good grub, you know, and taken a bit of the meat. And then the rest is history, isn't it? But yeah. it was, it reminded me of that. And that I felt was in keeping with the book, just to remind people how domestication can happen very easily and that it can be mutually beneficial if it's done right. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a really fascinating reflection. So I think all of these human-animal interactions, relationships, it's it's fascinating to think about them, I, for me at least, across the board, across different areas of animal use, across different species. And then you can sort of reflect on Hmm, that's interesting. We do that to, I don't know, a racehorse, and yet we do that to a dog, and we don't allow that to happen to a lamb. And, and those sorts of comparisons and sometimes inconsistencies are important, uh, well, important and interesting. But then also going back through time, the sort of cultural context of how we've related to animals over very many years and, and across the globe. You know, you think of um, people in, in certain indigenous communities in jungles that, that breastfeed um, primate infants and things like that so I think yes your relating of the fox cub story to sort of reflecting on the origins of domestication of of dogs is really helpful and 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 fascinating and things like that fascinate me as well but in that case just for anyone that um well for those who haven't read it um essentially a, a wee beautiful fox cub was in my parents back garden um and you know at the first pass as he just sort of trotted he or she trotted past um the front door we just sort of me and my dad held our breath and thought we've had this beautiful this wonderful sighting and weren't we lucky but the fox kept returning to the garden and um for some reason so i don't know why uh this one was particularly bold and inquisitive um but i was able to build a, a relationship um with with that cub through sort of usual training type methods uh, you know I was offering bits of food that they liked um, but he came to be very trustful and he would come every single night and eventually the relationship focused as much around play as it did on on food and the most memorable that I write about in the book was kind of the, the game of round and round the mulberry bush where it was yes. pouring with rain and this fox it was like what we the, do on the other side yeah. Yeah. yeah and you go left he goes right you go right, he goes left, and then you both go left, and you bump into each other, and he sort of leaps in the air. But if, at, at any point, if if there was fear, if this was fear based, he could have just legged it, and we'd have never seen him again. But he didn't. He went back to the other side, and he's even more. You know, his whole body language is totally sort of uh, heightened stimulation, arousal. You could just almost hear the laughter. It was just fantastic you know and then he he went around didn't he and he collected all the sort of rope dog balls from everybody else's gardens, everybody else's gardens. Yeah, and then he found them. this like great selection <laughs> yeah absolutely fantastic I mean I suppose one thing that we've seen with um you know the rise of camera phones and social media you do see these sorts of fascinating behaviors by wild animals and not least foxes and you know we've seen foxes on children's trampolines haven't we on um YouTube and Twitter and so on um so I think we know that they're just really playful, really clever, really inquisitive. And I was fortunate in that case to um, sort of be on the receiving end. I think one of the reasons I was glad to be able to include it is whilst you're sort of taking a bit of a broad brush view of kind of animal use across the world, it was maybe just a way of reassuring and reminding readers that I'm as vulnerable to being totally sucked into the life of another individual animal uh, as anybody else and absolutely 
loved and was enriched by it. Yeah, no, it's lovely. But you focus in the book on all these important things like the five freedoms. More recently, you know, they've been adapted, haven't they, Sean, to be called the five domains, Mm. nutrition, behaviour, environment, emotion. So it's been slightly tweaked. And of course, that fox cub had all of that. But if we move to your chapter on domesticated dogs, you know, you are the PDSA vet, I should say as well. So I'm just going to read this quote, which was from the PDSA, which um, apparently in in the charity's opinion, sums up Britain's dogs. May I just read this little Mm. quote? You know the quote I mean? Yeah. So the PDSA reckons UK dogs are stressed, lonely, overweight, bored, aggressive, misunderstood, but loved. Discuss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think when you when we go back to that starting point that all animals, whether or not they're being kept as pets or for food or for sports, should um as a result of their sentience have a good life and a humane death. Then our job is to look across all of those different areas and find examples or check that there aren't examples of of where the good life aspiration isn't being met. So basically seek out, uh, seek to identify welfare problems that we can then try to address. And some people are surprised when that kind of beam shines on pets, our companion animals, that despite being much loved and having so much resource uh, lavished on them of both time and money and affection, that still some of them don't necessarily, as a result of, of, of those resources, have a, um, a good life. So that f- passage, that phrase that you just read out, came off the back, uh, as you know, of the, the PDSA Animal Wellbeing Report, which is the, the, the poor report. And we, PDSA, have been doing that with YouGov um, annually since 2011. And it's the uh, largest annual survey of pet, dog, cat and rabbit well-being in the UK, and it essentially is asking, are the UK's dogs, cats, pet dogs, cats, and rabbits having their five welfare needs met? So we see examples in dogs of whether, unsurprisingly, that they're not having their five welfare needs met, at least some of them and not all of the time. Um, we have plenty of evidence for that on just clinical uh, experience from everyday veterinary practice, but this, the poor report then provides kind of statistics and data and backing that uh, backing for that based on nationally representative samples of pet owners um the the kinds of findings that then lead to those words are things like um a fifth of dogs are routinely left at home for five or more for five or more hours each day which as we know can be a risk factor for both general boredom and understimulation, but for some dogs, separation-related behaviour, so they can't actually cope with being left alone and, and can suffer as a result of that. Um, there's a pet obesity epidemic, as we pretty well know, so around 60% of dogs are either overweight or, or obese, um, and so on. And so, you know, once we've got those stats, we want to bring that message to the general public, and I guess having um, a soundbite like that has helped us just stop people in their tracks and prick their ears up and go hang on yeah, they, we love it. it these are our, fam- our much loved family members how can that possibly be true but it's in the context of data uh, to to give supporting evidence for it and I guess again as ever the intention isn't then to just feel as though everyone's bashed on the head and feel really sad it's it's as a launch pad for what what can we do and look at the examples of good practices 
ah, but it's not happening there. Let's go down that avenue and see if we can replicate it, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think it is, it, it's all about education. I mean, so much is going on at a government level, isn't it, at the moment, Sean? I mean, I was at AppDog just last week down mm. in Parliament because um, the big discussion was dog bites, you know? Yeah. You know, and I... I, I and I said, listen, I always have to speak out at these things. I don't know what's wrong with me. Anyway, you know, and I said, look, I really feel we're on a merry-go-round for this. I mean, how long have we been discussing mm. dog bites? How long is the situation not getting any better, you know? And I think we do need to make some changes, like bring back the dog licence, you know, make dog ownership a, a true responsibility. The word responsible, I don't think it's been overused so much. But And I think there's huge scope for for everything to become better you know certain breeds of dogs should as an owner you should have that breed of dog you should have a garden you know Mm. um, and not live in a high rise with a small balcony with an Australian shepherd for example do you know what I mean Sean yeah like that absolutely yeah I mean I think if again putting it all in context we can see generally positive trends so I suppose you know dogs and cats they were just kind of around our households and they got fed scraps and they sort of had their place and maybe they were chained up in a kennel outside and and that sort of thing and obviously in some parts of the world that's still the case but here in the UK there and elsewhere their sort of status and value has risen and they have in the vast majority of cases become as many people would describe much loved family members they're almost you know more than companions and they really bring meaningful benefits so their status has changed and our awareness and understanding of their needs has changed in terms of their healthcare needs our ability to both prevent and treat disease has changed all of these things have got better but equally in becoming more aware of their their needs and that's very much from their perspective so not just things that kind of help keep them alive like their healthcare needs but things that really feed into their well-being like whether or not they have adequate companionship or enough stimulation those sorts of things then you know our our caregiving practices I think are continually evolving and, and rightly so and you mentioned the UK animal welfare legislation that was updated to reflect their needs in 2006 prior to that had been the legislation from 1911 so that mm. re- that was a huge step change in, yes, in their legal protection and provisions exactly, exactly. yet yeah, I feel a lot more could be done on that actually. I totally agree yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so now so with all of that, that again sit looking making sure we capture and reflect the positive still there, I you know 100% agree and that's why I wrote it but there's so much still to be done in terms of pets I think one of the big problems is it's kind of lack and this comes through the poor report as well lack of pre-purchase or pre-acquisition research and counseling you know so I think there's still a lot of well there is still a lot of impulsive yeah totally impulsive and that's what we saw in the pandemic and you know the fallout of this and now going into the cost of living crisis it's throwing another gloomy cloud over our pets you know Mm. some people are literally not going to be able to afford to feed them yeah I just feel some people have taken on dogs for the wrong reasons thinking of them perhaps you know dare I say it yes I do as a comfort blanket rather than you know a commitment to think of them as a a convenient accessory when they want them to be and you know not the the constant companion and commitment that they should be because Mm. we have all of these third-party services now 
and dog walkers, dog creches, dog groomers, which are all brilliant and they all serve a purpose. But if overused, you know, I think that some people spend any time with their dog at all. Yeah, that's interesting. There's a lot of work being done, isn't there, to try to improve the 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 regulation of those sorts of services and that will help welfare but you're right there could be a mindset that almost wants to outsource care so that the the sort of the nice bit is left at the end where where you have a uh a, a cuddle on the sofa at the end of the day i don't know i mean i think that's interesting as well yeah because one of the trends that we've been concerned about historically is that the acquisition of pets as status symbols and that you know they're just a sort of part of someone's image whether that's the type of breed that you get other species and again they're not really being valued as individual sentient animals but even it's that's a fascinating thought actually that even as we're recognizing more their values in terms of companionship and physical and mental health still in seeking to uh, realize those benefits we outsource a lot of their of their care um yeah, I suppose. I know there's the, no real answer, is there? No. But another aspect, obviously, as well. So we're approaching Christmas and stuff. Did you read the very interesting study out of the University of Belfast um, about how dogs? You know, we've known it for ages. You know, Sean, you know, dogs smell fear. It was an old mm. adage for thousands of years, and indeed they do actually. So before science proved that dogs smell our cortisol levels and our stress, dogs' behaviour to somebody fearful or stressed in the past would have given that adage the adage that it is, if you know what I mean. So that shows for me that dogs do react behaviorally to the smell, for example, of cortisol. And the moment, particularly, everyone I know anyway is totally stressed out. Mm. (laughs) And then you think, well, no wonder the PTSA starts that quote with the word stressed, you know, because stress can be contagious. Yeah, and we know that there's all sorts of triggers for stress in our our pets, don't we? I mean, classics... um, that cats are particularly vulnerable to are things like, but but dogs aren't immune. Things like even just a new kitchen or a new bathroom, and there's that kind of physical alteration to the house. And there's works tradespeople coming in and out of the house. Um, periods of divorce or relationship breakups are, of course, so stressful for people. Um, but we know that that the pets can be reactive to that as well and are very tuned into the stress those sorts of times uh, similarly the arrival of a new baby and some of the steps that you can do in advance of a, a new baby coming to prepare pets for the arrival so they are i mean yeah as you say we've known for a long time that they're very tuned in to our our mood and our household's mood and the stresses and strains that are there um and i think as as for all animals it's it's becoming increasingly aware of those depths of animal experience that I suppose heightens our duty to try and protect them so perhaps back in the day the the period that we alluded to earlier it was about it was sort of about keeping animals alive wasn't it It was like survival it was making sure that they had enough food enough water that Mm. they got that they got taken to the vet when they needed it it was all very physical and meeting their physical health care needs and now what we're seeing more of and becoming more of is, is the importance of paying attention to their 
their emotional and their psychological needs. And I think that's yeah. gone gone from feeling a bit ridiculous to some people as being quite mainstream and rightly so. Yeah, because we've, you know, dogs are hugely adaptable. But yeah, you know, like with the Australian Shepherd, it should be in Australia herding sheep and, you know, being a very physical dog and having a purpose. Dogs had a purpose for us mm. back in the day that was things like, you know, driving our cattle to market so we could sell them. That's the start of capitalism. You know, we couldn't have done it without the dog. Mm. And then, but now it, it all seems to be much more about helping us emotionally because most of us aren't farmers with with, with sheep dogs and cattle dogs. So, you know, they are, I mean, my dogs are in the room right now. They're fine. They've been for their good long walk and all the rest of it. And they're just relaxed in their beds, which is great. And we'll do more activity this afternoon and settle mm-hmm. again. The, the five freedoms, the five domains, so important, Sean. But look, I mean, this book, I, I, I really urge listeners to to really think about investing in this for Christmas because it really is very very thought-provoking and the last chapter very briefly Sean you know highlight why you've written the last chapter called the power of one well thanks Anna I mean absolutely to to bring together and just put a a final focus on this idea that, that that whilst the world's many problems, not least animal welfare, goodness me, you know, climate change, biodiversity, antimicrobial resistance, widespread poverty, dear me. Um, they're not only interlinked, which I talk about um, at different points in the book, but at the end, um, but they can all seem overwhelming. And I think um, I love the phrase um paralysis through analysis you know and we can just either feel overwhelmed from day dot or we can start thinking about it and worrying and wondering what we can do and then feel (laughs) overwhelmed regardless I think we just have to keep (laughs) um believing that that there are things that as individuals we we can do and if lots of individuals do things then better things can happen collectively as a result of that it's not as I say that isn't a prescription then for sort of taking the heat off corporations and governments and so on those institutions need to do lots more as well but they're probably more well they're demonstrably more likely to do it if they feel it's the, the collective will of the people and that we're exerting our pressure um so I just give nice I hope nice practical examples of things we can do whether that's just if you've got if we're fortunate to have a, a garden to, to garden in a way that's sympathetic to wildlife and plant plants for pollinators and maybe put a little wildlife pond in if you're able to not using the pesticides and weed kill all that sort of thing um through to how we vote i include and then voting with our our wallets our food purchases so i've included a nice little infographic which the british veterinary association had um created which shows you the different logos on food packets whether that's sausage or bacon or whatever animal derived food you might be be looking for Um, and that helps you understand which are classed as some of the higher welfare options and kind of linking um i suppose those animal welfare choices with the environment and economics is my support um and other support of the less and better approach to meat and dairy so you talked about the the meat chickens and how yeah we used to value meat a lot more and, and not eat so much of it and sort of really value it when we did and we can probably uh, and indeed we we need really on environmental grounds as well to to get back to something like that where we're not eating so much meat and dairy um many reports including government reports have have clearly stated that but that then means that if we're to retain proportional spend we can eat a bit less but pay a little bit more for it i try and debunk the myth that higher welfare food is really really expensive and totally out of the reach of most 
albeit that I'm you know very sensitive to that sort of topic at the moment in the cost of living crisis. But nevertheless, if we can just eat a bit less for lots of different reasons and pay a bit more for it, that is one of the ways of really helping to support farmers who want to do the right thing and improve animal welfare um, of, of animals that are farmed for our food. But it, I hope it's really, yeah, again, sort of practical and optimistic and leaves us uh, on something of a high um, that, that we can all help make change and reduce our animal welfare footprint. Yeah, yeah, no, um, it, it, it's brilliant. And I, you know, your, your insights into nature, I love all of that. And well, we won't go to fox hunting now, but you tackle that one, right? <laughs> I agree, Sean, there's lots of issues in here. So um, thank you. Thanks for talking. And it's called uh, Through a Vet's Eyes. Who publishes it, Sean? It's published by Octopus. Um, and as you know, the subtitle is How We Can All Choose a Better Life for Animals. And I suppose that's the bit that really tells you what, it, what it's about. But uh, exactly yeah. no it really is and um yeah and we'll put all the links in the show notes to where you can um get it i guess um, amazon and those sorts of places yeah. yeah absolutely yeah all the usual um online retailers and, and some independents as well great stuff oh well, look thanks sean and thank you for writing you. this book and it's a real achievement for all animals so yay thank, thank you so much Anna. i really really appreciate it thank you our show Mr Binks what did you think yes I know some of the farming bits were a bit gory but there's always prospect for change and living more ethically with all nature what's that yes you're right it is time for woof of the week we need to readdress the balance of how we share the planet with animals and not exploit them for our own needs Well, I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, go on, rate and review the show wherever you tune into your podcast. Thanks again, of course, to Vet Sean Wensley and all the links to his book Through a Vet's Eyes are in the show notes. Thanks, of course, to Mike Hansen, my producer. Find out more about him and his Jack Russell, call Billy, at Pod People UK. And for me, I'm just at Anna Webb Dogs. What's that, Mr Binks? Oh yes, you're right, we have got this new Patreon service, which means that if you liked what you hear, go on, you can give us a little tip. But we'll be back in your feed next Sunday, so why don't you subscribe now, and that way you'll never miss another show. Bye for now.